Well, uh, welcome along this evening. It's great to have you with us. Welcome, and to those watching us at home as well. Uh, it's always exciting to start a new series, and especially a series in a book that is so well known, uh, Matthew's Gospel, and also in a, a sermon that is so well known uh, among Christians and uh, among those uh, who have faith and would have heard this story at some point in their life. We are in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we've called it Right Side Up for, for a, a good reason. Uh, usually this is sort of understood to be the upside down kingdom or something to that sort of, um, uh, sort of uh, wording. And we, we think that actually this, this is actually the right side up way of living. Not the upside down way of living. It might seem that way uh, in in society today, but we wanna we wanna over this series, and there's gonna be I think about eight or nine uh, different sermons in this series through this particular sermon uh, over these um, uh, eight weeks. We want you to uh, see this um, particular way of living that's being expressed, the things that Jesus is bringing up in this sermon are something that you can actually attain to. Um, and uh, I'm excited about those that are coming along to, uh, to share. We actually have a husband and wife combo. Uh, Wendy and Noah Schneider are going to uh, jump in on the series before they head off down to Wellington, so I'm stoked that they can be a part of it. We're going to have our amazing Monica, our, our very own Bernie Cowan, who's over in Chicago, probably watching now. Bernie, I see you, mate. I see you. Uh, he's going to be coming uh, in a couple of weeks' time as well, so very excited. Uh, but more interestingly... Uh, I love the fact that this particular sermon uh, paints a picture of a world as it could be. And we always go, well, that's, that's very philosophical. It's something that we, we look to out there. But I think it's something that can be, not in complete fullness, but can be here and now. And it's something that's pretty scary. And tonight, I hope, uh, as I kick off this series, I'm able to um, sit in place or establish a little bit of what it means to walk this journey of faith in the light of the Sermon on the Mount, the right-side-up way of living. It's this right-side-up kingdom. Uh, better turn that on. That might help. All right. So tonight, John Stott inspired me. And uh, he, he writes this. He says, the Beatitudes... This, this first little part that we're going to be looking at are bold statements of the nature of kingdom life. Those who walk with Jesus, those that proclaim Jesus to be Lord and Savior, this is a way of life that you're called into, this kingdom walk. And I, I love the fact that this is a kingdom like no other. It's a kingdom with standards and values that can seem completely upside down to our current society, but it's something that, that Jesus calls us into and then equips us for. He's saying it's within you. You just need to allow that to come out. You need to live into it, uh, is, is words I like to use. And it's something that uh, resonates within all of us. And as you read these words tonight, as you, as you engage with this, there's going to be something which within you says... 
I don't think this is possible, and I, I don't quite understand it, but something about it makes sense to me. I want you to incline your ear to what the Spirit might have to say to you uh, as we go on. Um, it's this curiosity that draws us inquisitively into its richness. And it's not just something to have in here, but it's something that hopefully will make that short journey uh, of six inches down to your heart. And there's something about teaching about this teaching that Jesus gives in these three chapters that contrasts a lot of our real lived experience. You're going to find that, and even just as I chug through these, these eight little snippets tonight, you're going to feel that. It's just, this is so opposite to the way in which the world calls us to live. Uh, a world in which these kind of statements seem like a bit of a joke. And, and not just the statements I'm going to talk about tonight, but a lot of the little passages we're going to encounter over the series, you're going to sense a little bit of uh, contrast to the real world. But the Gospels are just that, aren't they? They're a great reversal. They're a, a great reversal of what we might be led to expect of a kingdom. I mean, there's plenty of kingdoms around the world at the moment. I think of places like Saudi Arabia. What kind of kingdom is that? You see, we, what we have in our mind about a kingdom, and we, we looked at this a little bit in our last series, is very often different to the kingdom experience that, that Christ is calling us to live into. Charles Spurgeon, another one of my faves, he said this. He said, the way to rise in this kind of kingdom that Jesus is explaining to us is to sink in ourselves. The way to rise in this kingdom is to sink in ourselves. Everything about our lived experience says the opposite to that, doesn't it? Everything. In fact, most of us, when we get the chance to rise in the kingdom of God, we actually sink within ourselves, not because we, don't, uh, because we want to be a part of the kingdom, because we don't actually want to give up the things that the world tell us is important to us, that are valuable to us. It's pretty scary to us to, to rise in that, in, that, in that atmosphere. And I'm sure uh, we understand something of the leadership principle that he's putting across. These behaviors, the characteristics, they're all polar opposite to the things we believe are right and true about our world at the moment. And it's almost like we're hardwired to the very opposite. And I want to make an argument tonight that we probably are very much hardwired to the opposite way of thinking that Jesus is going to call us into in these, um, in these sermons. I saw a great example of this once, and I want to sort of set the tone with why I think it's so opposite to us with a little video. I was at uh, an Easter show. If you're from Auckland, you'll know what the Easter show is. It's something they put on. I went there, and there was this guy doing this thing with this bike, <clears throat> And uh, it was very frustrating to me. And so uh, I'll let this video explain why it was very um, confusing to me. Hey, it's me, Destin. Welcome back to Smarter Every Day. You've heard people say it's just like riding a bike, meaning it's really easy and you can't forget how to do it, right? But I did something. I did something that damaged my mind. It happened on the streets of Amsterdam and, and I got really scared, honestly. I, I can't ride a bike like you can anymore. Before I show you the video of what happened, I, I need to tell you the backstory. 
Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill and I was really proud of it. Everything changed though when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses and they like to play jokes on the engineers. He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Destin Sandlin. First attempt riding the bicycle. I couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. Therefore, knowledge is not understanding. Look, I know what you're probably thinking. Destin's probably just an uncoordinated engineer and can't do it, but that's not the case at all. The algorithm that's associated with riding a bike in your brain is just that complicated. Think about it. Downwards force on the pedals, leaning your whole body, pulling and pushing the handlebars, gyroscopic precession in the wheels, every single force is part of this algorithm. And if you change any one part, it affects the entire control system. I do not make definitive statements that often, but I'm telling you right now, you cannot ride this bicycle. You might think you can, but you can't. I know this because I'm often asked to speak at universities and conferences and I take the bike with me. It's always the same. People think they're gonna try some trick or they're just gonna power through it. It doesn't work. Your brain cannot handle this. For instance, this guy. I offered him $200 just to ride this bike 10 feet across the stage. Everybody thought he could do it. No, 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 no. No, you didn't understand. You didn't understand. So, this way. <laughs> All right, so uh, whatever you're in. Quickly! No, no, you have to keep your feet on. Dude, All right, here we go. Just give it a Like, you gotta start rolling at least. Once you have a rigid way of thinking in your head, sometimes you cannot change that, even if you want to. <laughs> so here's what I did. It was a personal challenge. I stayed out here in this driveway and I practiced about five minutes every day. My neighbors made fun of me. I had many wrecks, but after eight months, this happened. One day I couldn't ride the bike and the next day I could. It was like I could feel some kind of pathway in my brain that was now unlocked. It was really weird though. It's like there's this trail in my brain, but if I wasn't paying close enough attention to it, my brain would easily lose that neural path and jump back onto the old road it was more familiar with. Any small distractions at all, like a cell phone ringing in my pocket, would instantly throw my brain back to the old control algorithm and I would wreck. But at least I could ride it. My son is the closest person to me genetically and he's been riding a normal bike for three years. That's over half his life. I wanted to know how long it would take him to learn how to ride a backwards bike, so I told him if he learned how to ride a backwards bike, he could go with me to Australia and meet a real astronaut. Are you gonna give up? No. Go ahead. This is how it starts. 
Look at this. This is such a big deal. Get up, you got it. Did you see his brain get it? So he, in how many weeks have we been doing this? Two weeks? In two weeks, he did something that took me eight months to do, which demonstrates that a child has more neuroplasticity, am I even saying that right, than an adult. It's clear from this experiment that children have a much more plastic brain than adults. That's why the best time to learn a language is when you're a young child. All right, today's bike log. I can ride smooth, I can ride fast. I'm thinking the experiment is over. Okay, now I'm in Amsterdam, a city that has more bicycles than people. The question is, can I ride a normal bike now? I mean, I've spent all this time unlearning how to ride a bike. If I go back and try to ride a normal one, will my brain mess up? So I've tweeted a Smarter Everyday Meetup, if you will, and I'm gonna see if somebody brings a bicycle and I'm gonna try to ride a normal bike. This was one of the most frustrating moments of my life. I had ridden a normal bike since I was six, but in this moment, I couldn't do it anymore. I had set out to prove that I could free my brain from a cognitive bias. But at this point, I'm pretty sure that all I proved is that I could only redesignate that bias. <laughs> pretty impressive, eh? Something very simple, but it illustrates what I'm trying to get across to you tonight. And as I go through these tonight, I hope you will remember this video. A reverse bike it sound, sounds like a, a really simple thing, but um, I actually tried that at Easter, um, and uh, the guy was standing there with a $100 note, and everything in me was just like dying to get that $100 note, but I couldn't do it. Everything in me. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is something that needs to damage uh, or break our minds and our thinking. You know what he said, what Destin said in that video, that, that we, we find ourselves in lived ruts that the world has placed upon us. And when we read something like the Sermon on the Mount, we get into the space where we're just like, I want to believe that, but the reality is the world tells me something different. And so tonight, these Beatitudes are going to do that to you. Uh, Jesus is moving us from knowledge to understanding and, and action. And it's not going to be an overnight thing. Eight months before he could actually ride that bike. Imagine how much longer it will take us to live a different way to the world. He's breaking our thinking, the ruts, the fixed lived experiences that we have. And he's calling us into the great reversal. So up on the screen, uh, feel free to read along with me. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, 
here right. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Great words. You see, we read these opening words of the Sermon on the Mount and the ruts of our thinking, this lived experience of the world that currently reflects everything to the contrary starts to to aggravate within us. There's a great quote that uh, I, I read this week. It said, In a world consumed by success, riches, long life, and power, this blessed life that's depicted is not very appealing. Whether we want to believe it or not, the Sermon on the Mount reveals a way of being that is very uncomfortable, but the right way up. And tonight I want to begin by helping to rewrite some of that coded thinking that may be in there for you. Um, And we're going to dig a little deeper. I've got three questions I want us to answer as we begin. The first is, who are the people that are being described? Well, firstly, these are a set of specifications that mark a group as Christian. Okay, It's not talking about everyone else in the world. It's talking about you and me, those of us who have chosen to walk the journey of faith with Jesus. They characterize their living and being sometimes, as we all know. You see, our relationships uh, are contributing to this around Um, our families and and workplaces and so forth. The other thing about the people that are being described is that they are equally blessed by the same spirit and obtainable by everyone. Okay, So I think one of the things we can do is we can remove ourselves from this and go, oh, actually, that's not me. I've got all these different kind of excuses going on. And and, uh, the problem is the Holy Spirit works all of these Christian graces in and through those who allow him. You've got to know that. And often we think those that are being described in these beatitudes, um, uh, you know, necessarily those who are poor, uh, those who are unfortunate, those who are, uh, are suffering. Uh, Jesus wants those things to describe you. He wants those things to describe you. All right. The second thing is that there's some qualities that are being commended. They aren't essentially economic advantage. They're not good looks. They're not social or celebrity status to today's world's um, uh, plans and desires. They are that of the kingdom. They're not a material thing. They're a spiritual thing. These qualities, as we will see in a few minutes, are lived spiritual states that transform the very world we live in, the physical world we live in. And then the third part of it is, what are the blessings that are being promised? So each quality and blessing is both present and future. Okay, We talked about this a little bit with uh, the table series. We talked about the now and the not yet. The things that, that God is doing here and now that are unmistakably God. You know, we see healings, we see some of these things, but they're not fully realized here and now. There's, a, there's an element of future not yet beyond the horizon, that God's going to have those complete fulfillment where every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That's out there, here and now. It's not complete, but it can begin here and now. That's why he sent his Holy Spirit. 
And the kingdom of God is a present reality that we receive, we enter into, and we inherit now um, and fully in eternity. So I'm saying that these things can be attained here and now. We like to spiritualize something and put it out there and go, oh, you know, I'll dabble in this, but I know that, you know, heaven's around the corner and, you know, we'll get there one day. So what are these characteristics and blessings? I've broken them into two groups, okay? So we had four of each. You wouldn't notice there's eight, okay? The first group I want to describe as being uh, in relation to God, okay? These first four are described as being in relation to God. I see this first one being blessed um, uh, are those poor in spirit. I personally see this one as being the first and most critical. Why do I say that? Because I see all of these as progressive. Okay, So as we go through these, they will build one on the next Okay, as we go through. So the first one, uh, blessed are the poor in the spirit. Um, Matthew's gospel is also reflected in Luke's where he uses a little bit, he calls them the woes, um, and he misses out the poor in, in spirit part of it. So why is this in spirit? Uh, why is it critical? Well, it's because this is about the state we perceive ourselves before God. Okay, A.W. Tozy said, uh, an inward state paralleling the outward circumstances of a common beggar in the streets. We've got to understand our place in relation to God. Now, every one of us, you know, or maybe not every one of us in this room, um, have gone through some sort of conversion experience where we've stood before God, we've had the gospel preached to us, and we've started to wrestle with what does it mean to be me in relation to this God? See, the poor in spirit is actually talking about our recognition of our sinfulness before God how poor we are and recognizing that. There's a, there's a power in recognizing that. You see, some of you just said, hey, I like this Jesus thing. I'll stamp that ticket to heaven and Bob's your uncle. We're off. Without the recognition of our sinfulness. And uh, we, we, we can actually ignore some of those things that God's placing on us. You see, our relationship with God has its bedrock in our knowledge and acceptance of who Jesus is, acceptance of our spiritual poverty before God. And without this acknowledgement of our inadequacy to overcome our sinfulness without Jesus and our dependence upon him, how can we truly be led to repentance? If we can't see what is wrong, how can we be sorry for what is wrong? It's radically countercultural in today's world. We can recognize our spiritual poverty. When we can do that, our relationship with God is transformed. In fact, I would say it doesn't actually begin until we get to that place. Some of you might wrestle with that later. So where does it go from here? The second of those that are celebrated, are those who mourn. They will be comforted. See, this isn't about those who have lost a loved one and are feeling sad, and so we go and we comfort them. No, 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 no. This is a progression of the last one. It's progression from acknowledging our spiritual poverty to grieving over it. 
those who mourn their spiritual poverty and come to a place where, God, I repent. I've come to this place of understanding that my sinfulness has led me into a place where I can do nothing about it. Lord, I repent. I call you into my life. It's the difference between confession and contrition, saying sorry and actually feeling sorry. You see the difference? Until it moves from your head knowledge to your heartfelt knowledge, very little changes. This is why when we share a gospel message, we're talking about understanding our sinfulness and then repenting of it. It is absolutely fundamental to Christian faith. And this is why Jesus starts with it. The third one, the meek will inherit the earth. This is where the placement of these attributes become or seem to become ordered. The meek come between those who mourn and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because meekness is a humble and gentle attitude toward others, which can only come through a true estimate of ourselves. We can only truly be gentle and humble with others when we know where we have come from, when we know our own spiritual lack that gets filled only by Jesus, then we can be humble and gentle with others. This is what the meekness element is about. Until it moves again from our head to our heart, we won't understand it. Meekness is essential um, and, and, and essential in the true view of ourselves. Expressing it as an attitude um, it, itself, an attitude and conduct with respect to others. It's, it's something that is done um, in and through us by God toward another. Again, this is a character, um, characteristic um, which isn't greatly desired generally. Um, and as we see so prevalent in society, um, it is the tough, it is the overbearing, it's those who struggle and wrestle with things that seem to get by and, and seem to um, succeed in the world's eyes. This isn't what Jesus is talking about in terms of meekness. It's funny, I, I was re- just reflecting today upon the, the transformation of Keanu Reeves. How many of you have seen over the last sort of three months, Keanu Reeves got this resurgence uh, you know, on social media? It's, it's hilarious. He's gone from absolute obscurity and all of a sudden he's on social media. You know, he looked like a homeless dude about two years ago. He was like, what's up with him? The guy must have got paid millions for this. Anyway, um, so they did a bit of the following him around and they started to create this story around him. And I just thought it was fascinating that Keanu Reeves has, has got this new notoriety for being gentle and humble and meek. This is, this is John Wick. Uh, I don't know if you've seen those movies. Don't watch those movies, all right? Give you nightmares. But he's been lauded as humble and quiet. Some might say meek. And it's, it's really appealing to people. People have been sucked into this thing. I think it's just a, you know, it's a media get up to try and get him to watch his new movies or something. But anyway, this is the meekness that Scripture is talking about. It's a personal meekness before God. So number four, 
those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Obviously, this relates to a spiritual hunger brought on in the progression of these previous three. I don't think you can get to this place of hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being satisfied by God in that if we haven't had an honest assessment of ourselves. We haven't gone back to that moment where we confessed and said, Lord, come and be a part of my life. Lord, I repent. Until we've reassessed where we've been, I don't think we can truly land here. It says they will be satisfied. It says because God will always feed the spiritually hungry. That's what one commentator said. Those whose supreme ambition is not material but spiritual, God will feed them. See, Matthew 16, later on, it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. So, the second part. I want to go back just a little bit and ask you, what is you know, the, the golden rule? What is the, what is the heart of this? To love God and to love others as yourself. The structure, I think, has actually got that implicit in it. Okay, Our Christian's relation to God then turns and becomes our relationship and those relations that we have with others before, um, yeah, before fellow men. So this first one, the merciful. Mercy is compassion for the need in people. Transformed eyes look to need with compassion. A self-centered mind looks past pain. It looks past the misery of another and the distress of another to self. I love in the Gospels that the story of the Good Samaritan, it's put there for a reason because we need to look upon others as God originally looked upon us with mercy with this understanding of um, our place in that. Mercy is a character trait that grows as Jesus is allowed to become more and more the ultimate influence in us. The pure of heart, they shall see God. This is in relation to the context of the other Beatitudes. It refers to more than our relationships. This is about integrity. The inside matches the outside, right? This is someone who has had the inward transformation that changes their character, not necessarily their status. Um, you know, Jesus um, attacks the, the Pharisees. He says, you, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside, it's like you've smeared Marmite in it. It's, it's my favorite way of describing it. And think of that teaching, the whitewashed tombs, you Pharisees, you He's talking about the pure of heart being people who have allowed that inward transformation to become a part of who they are. It doesn't matter if you look like a homeless person. God says that inward space is what is most important. This is someone who's had that inward transformation. It changes their character. It's when Jesus looks at the onlookers who were mocking the lady who was about to give her two copper coins. Jesus is looking at the heart. I don't care what she's given. I'm seeing what's happening on the inside. All right. The peacemakers. Let's rattle through them. 
This is a progression from this next thing. So we, as I say, both sides are progressive, okay? We can't understand what it means to be a peacemaker if we don't understand mercy, okay? We don't understand what it means to be pure in heart. Peacemakers. According to, to this, every Christian is meant to be a peacemaker in the community and in the church that they find themselves in. See, peace in this sense is reconciliation. And God is the author of reconciliation. You and I, we've been reconciled to God. We are then called to be those who bring reconciliation. Sons and daughters who seek to do what the Father has done. Uh, this week I was with um, the Assembly Council. I, I'm a chair of the Assembly Council of the Baptist Churches of New Zealand. I was there with a whole bunch of other leaders, and it was decided on Wednesday that we would go and visit the site of Ihumatau. And we have some uh, Baptist leaders that are actually serving on site. Every Sunday they're given space to lead prayers and reflection on that site. And we were having our um, a regular meeting, and... Um, we decided it was important for us as a movement to go and stand with those um, who are journeying this um, on, their, on their whenua, on their land. We talked about what does it mean to slow down and to listen. Ridding ourselves of prejudice, striving sympathetically to understand both points of view. And so we said, why don't we go? So we took our national leader, the principal of our college. There was about 30 of us in all. And we were, um, we were welcomed on. Uh, we did the full porphyry uh, with everyone. It was fantastic. And then we got to stand and talk and meet with them. I don't know if you know this, but the Baptist movement of churches has um, what we call uh, a, a treaty affirmation statement. Did you know that? The Baptist Churches of New Zealand have a treaty affirmation statement. And uh, number two in that says that we will encourage our members, our Baptist church members, to acknowledge injustices inflicted upon Māori locally, nationally, and within our movement, and to support all attempts to redress the wrongs of the past and to prevent further wrongs being inflicted upon Māori. We decided, based on that and a number of other the affirmations that we have, that we needed to go and stand with those who may not be being treated justly. It's an important thing as a Christian to learn what it means to be a peacemaker, to be that person who demonstrates and leads reconciliation. Last one, the hardest one. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It may seem strange that Jesus should pass from peacemaking to persecution, from the work of reconciliation to the experience of hostility. Not all attempts at reconciliation succeed. In fact, our leaning uh, into this whole ihu matau thing um, we thought might bring some flack from our movement. But bringing an apology and a confession 
you know, sometimes maybe thrown back at us. And there was one or two people who came up to us in that, in that space and, and quoted scripture back to us and said, what are you doing about these things in our land? It was fantastic. I liked it. Um, some people were a little bit hurt by that. But as you stand in these places, persecution comes. As you seek to be meek, as you seek to be merciful, as you seek to be someone who is pure of heart, people don't like that. You will suffer. There is going to be pushback because the way Jesus calls us to live is so contrasting to the world. Jesus expects his disciples to rejoice and be glad in the midst of these things. Not to retaliate or to sulk, not to just grin and bear it like a stoic, nor try to pretend to enjoy it, but to rejoice and be glad. If you're being persecuted, something has gone right, not wrong. Something's gone right. What? Something's gone right, not wrong, on account of your loyalty to Jesus. If you're being persecuted because you're being a douchebag, you deserve that. If you're being persecuted because your loyalty to Jesus is shining through, there's a party in heaven. Suffering then is a badge of true discipleship. That's what it's telling us. See, the Sermon on the Mount calls out the fakers. The right side up world Jesus wants to begin calling into being through us is as much about refusing to be in tune with the world and its standards as it is not. It's about learning to ride the reverse bike for the first time. Tonight can be that first time for you. Maybe you've never heard these passages being spoken this way. But just like learning something new, just like breaking those uh, neural patterns that are in your mind, habits that we've fallen into, it requires persistence and, it, and a resilience, a reliance upon the confession and forgiveness that we make to be real in our lives for that whole faith journey and everything that we've been learning to come real in us now, to become not just something that's a nice club to be a part of and there's a free feed afterwards. This isn't just about meeting together. This is about a transformed world here and now. And as we go through this whole series, we're going to get challenged Every single time, every single one of these sermons that are coming have got a challenge for you, which may involve persecution for your righteousness. I want to ask you, are you willing to stand up and be a part of that? So what part of the journey are you at? Are you willing to see it through to that new place? Eight months of wobbling around? I invite the band to, to come and join me tonight. I want to close um, with a reading, the same reading, but from the message version. 
And I want to do that as you take some time to just sit and reflect. I think as we go through these kinds of um, sermons, things stick out for us. I want this um, understanding of our right relationship with God and with others to be the starting point of reflection through this series. Because right here, right now, this decision, this, this moment can actually have a reverberation into your life if you allow God to do something with it. So just as the, the band plays quietly, I'm going to read this. And then we're just going to take a couple of minutes. And if you want to respond, maybe it's by standing and maybe it's by kneeling in the aisle or something. Just It's not, it's not a response to me. It's a response to what God is saying to you through the Spirit. Let it be that, okay? Not about me. Let me read to you. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing a huge crowds, he climbed up a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, they climbed with him. And arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less than there is, uh, with less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Because only then can you be embraced by the one who is most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever have. You're blessed when you care At the moment of being careful, you find yourself cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Because then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete and fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourself blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me, says Jesus. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though you don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Let's just take a couple of moments and I'll lead you in prayer.
tonight there is some who this message might be a little bit too overwhelming Lord we find ourselves possibly right back at the start having to reassess whether or not I I consider myself sinful and repentant Lord for those tonight Lord those who may not know you and want to begin that journey and they may be watching from home, Lord, I pray that you would come by your spirit and you would speak supernaturally to them. Let them know that they can be a child of God. Lord, for others who are embroiled in other areas of life where these very attitudes, these characteristics, characteristics, these these traits that you're calling out of us that just seem too hard let them know that they are blessed as they realize that because we live in a world that needs people who are willing to step into it and Lord for those among us tonight who are encountering persecution Lord let them laugh Let them find joy in that. Let them clap as it says in the message. Let them rejoice because as they are persecuted, Lord, they know, they know that that righteousness of God is starting to shine out of them. They know that that people are uncomfortable because Jesus is shining through. The truth of your word is shining through a human being. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you tonight that we can stand rest assured that he and only he redeems and brings life. And then as we surrender our lives and allow him to do what only he can do, our world is transformed. So come, Lord, and speak. Do as only you can do. We welcome you in this place, Jesus. Amen.